for finishing up 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses uh, 5 to 14. Now, in high school, uh, I ran cross-country. It's one of the sports that I uh, decided to do, and there were a few you know, running techniques that I had learned throughout my years that uh, I implemented as I was running. But probably the one that I, I, I liked the best uh, and the vice that I found the most helpful was that uh, make sure you finish the race strong. You know, to finish the race being able to say that I have, I have nothing left in me. I have given it my all. And there was times when I would be uh, running a, a race. It was a difficult course and I would get to that final turn where you had the, the finish stretch and I felt like I just couldn't, couldn't finish strong. I felt like I just needed to cruise in or almost walk in at the rate that I was going in. But my coach and my fellow teammates, they knew this. They knew that uh, usually when people get to that final turn, they, are, uh, they have a hard time finishing strong. And so they would stand there at that final turn and they would encourage me. They would, they would yell to me, I know it hurts, but, but keep going. Finish the race strong. When our passage this morning, that is what Peter is commanding to the people of God. Peter is acting as this this coach to encourage us when it's hard, when it feels like we can't go on, to finish strong the race that we are on. Throughout this letter, Peter has asked us, he's asked the people to do some really challenging things. He's asked us to take serious our, our call to follow Jesus, and he knows that we are going to suffer for it. And so in his last words of his letter, he's going to leave us with words of encouragement. Words of encouragement of how we can finish the race as faithful Christians. And so if you're not there already, we're going to be uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5 to 14. And so Peter has just been, uh, he's just written to the elders of the church with some final words of exhortation to them. And now he speaks again uh, generally to to all Christians that he's writing to. He says this in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you 
who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So I've titled this message, Finishing a Faithful Christian. If you're here this morning, I truly hope that that is your desire in this life. That you desire to, as the the Bible says, run with perseverance, the race that is marked out for us. That your desire is to make it to the end with blood, sweat, and tears because you have followed God in the, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thanks, John. And so we want to finish the race of life in a way that we can be counted as faithful uh, before the Lord. And so Peter here is going to give us four ways of doing that, four characteristics of the Christian who finishes faithfully. We're going to be looking at, that's what we're going to be walking through this morning, those four things. And so first we see, there in verse 5 and 6, that a Christian who finished faithfully is humble in submission. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothing yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he might exalt you. And so Peter commands those who are younger to humble themselves and to submit to the elders of the church. Now when he says younger here, he's meaning the whole congregation who for the most part uh, are generally going to be younger than the older uh, people who are in leadership of the church. I mean, you see some, some places in Scripture where that's not always the case. And for example, Paul says, Uh, To a younger Timothy who is leading a church, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But for the most part, the congregation is usually usually younger than the leadership. And so the point is that when he says younger here, that the the younger are to submit to the elders of the church, he's, he's referring to the whole congregation, regardless of age. The command is those who are in the church, those who are younger, submit to the elders of the church. Now, if you remember, as we've walked through 1 Peter, he's actually talked a lot about this idea of submission. I mean, he talked about submission to the governing authorities, he talked about submission to uh, your master, he's talked about submission of, of wives to their husbands, he's talked about submission in general to Christ as the chief shepherd. Now here he gives a final category, and that is submission of the, the church, the congregation, to the elders, the leaders of the church. And in the previous examples, passages where we talked about submission, we talked about what it does and does not mean. For example, submission to the government does not mean doing everything that the government says. The government has limits that have been placed on them by God, and we obey the government, we submit to the government within the bounds of those limits. So if the government tells you that uh, you cannot worship the Lord, you say, no, that is not your authority to determine. If the government tells you that you cannot baptize, you cannot take the Lord's Supper, you can only have X amount of people in your church, we say to them, no, that is not your authority to dictate the worship of the church. And now the same is true for submission to church leadership. You see, if there are no limits, then what you end up with 
is authoritarian elders. Just like if you put no limits on the government, you end up with an authoritarian government. The same is true for leaders of the church. And so I want to reiterate for us a little bit what submission does and does not mean. I know some of you have come from uh, churches in your past where you had elders who were authoritarian. Elders who said it's either my way or the highway. Elders who have really abused the authority that God has given them. And so let's look then at what submission actually means to elders. So first, submission doesn't mean obeying your leaders when they command something contrary to Scripture. Now we all know this. We, uh, if your church leaders command you to sin, then you do not submit to them. You obey God rather than obey man. So that one we all, we all know. Next, submission does not mean that the elders are lords over the conscience of the church. Elders are not lords over the conscience of the church. Now, this is a tricky one because I do think that there are times when biblical submission may require you as a, as a member of a church to do something that you're not fully convinced of. You're not fully convinced of. And let me give you an example of that. Let's say that the leadership of the church, they have... Uh, taking the time to, to study God's Word, and they have come to the c- conclusion uh, that it says that everyone uh, in the church, every, every woman in the church, uh, should wear head coverings. If it, we, we want our worship to be acceptable to God, and, and we, we've found that from Scripture, the only way, uh, or a way that we facilitate that is, is by women covering their heads. Now, let's say that you are a member of this church, and you've expressed your opinion, and, and you yourself have not come to this same conviction, what would it look like in that church to submit to the elders in this case? So you don't think that that's what the Bible is teaching. The church does, and they're asking you to do this. What would submission to the elders look like? Well, really, you have, you have three options of what you could do. First, you could disobey uh, what your elders have have asked you to do. You, you still continue to attend the church. You don't follow their rules. Uh, but eventually, that's going to lead to conflict, which would probably, remove, probably lead uh, to you being removed from the church. And so I'd, advi- I'd, I'd advise against uh, that option. Now, the second option is that uh, you could leave the church. You could say, uh, you know, this, I don't think our, 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 our views and our values don't align uh, I don't think that we should be having these rules in place, and so I'm going to go and I'm going to find a new good church. Or there's a third option, and that is that you can submit to the leadership of the church on this issue. So even though you don't agree with their view, you submit to the elder's decision because they are not causing you to sin in this case. They're not, they're not causing you to, to do something that you think is sinful, that is going to condemn you before God. And so if you are a woman, this would involve you going along with the the elder's decision and wearing a head covering. Now, the question is, what if they are are asking you to do something that you do consider to be sin? Your conscience has, has bound you and said that if I am to do this, this would be sin. Then what would submission to the elders look like? And so let's say this issue of head coverings went the other way. The church leadership, for some reason, said, you know, we want to be, 
We don't want to go back to the old ways of things. We want to make, we want to want people to be as welcoming as possible. And so we're just going to make a rule, no wearing head coverings at all uh, in the church. And let's say you've been convicted from Scripture that uh, you should wear a head covering to honor the Lord. Should you submit in this case? Well, I don't think that you are required to because this would be leading you to do something that you think is a sin. And the reason that I say that is because that's what the Bible says. When Paul talking about issues of conscience, there's really two main passages, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, he never tells either the weaker or the stronger brother to bind their conscience. He gives his opinion on the matter. He says, I think this is what is best, but he does not uh, bind them. He lets them make the decision. And now, this is the Apostle Paul. So even Paul, with the authority of an apostle, he does not have the right to bind their consciences, even the consciences of those who are wrong on the issue. And so now all of that to say that elders have to be cautious that they are not uh, putting in place things that are going to be binding the consciences of their congregation. We saw this a lot throughout COVID. Some people thought that they should, uh, in obedience to God, worship, worship God, uh, perhaps without veiled faces, without a mask, and, and, and leaders abused their authority, and they bound the consciences of the people in their congregation. And so elders need to be cautious of this, and you need to know that if an elder is asking you to do something that you, from Scripture, think is sin, uh, then I don't think that you are required to do it. But if you can submit without sinning, uh, then that is what you should try to do. You should try to do that out of obedience to God's command to submit to the elders of the church. So submission to elders doesn't mean that they are lords over the conscience of the congregation. That's the second thing. And then finally, submission does not mean that elders have the authority to command whatever they want, and you must obey. An elder is under authority himself. He's under the authority of God's word, and he uh, God has given him specific limits in which he can exercise his sphere of, of influence. See, elders are given authority in the church and not in other areas of your life. And so if I tell you that you need to you know, apply for a certain job or tell you that you can't move to this place or that place or tell you that you need to you know, start a certain exercise routine, I can't say to you, well, the Bible says submit to your elders and obey them uh, because... That's not my authority to command. You're not, you're not under any obligation to obey in areas where God has not given the elders of the church authority. And so if that is then kind of laid what submission is not, what then is submission to your leaders? In very general terms, it is placing yourself under the spiritual leadership of the church recognizing that it is God who has appointed the position of elder and has given them, because they inhabit this position, a certain level of authority and then placing yourself under that authority. And so it means trusting in their leadership. It means not seeking to undermine them or undermine the positions of the church. It means taking their wisdom and guidance to heart. See, God has... Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, it says, you know, elders, pastors, shepherds, teachers, 
They're given as a, as a gift to the church. And so uh, it is a gift that God has given you men who are able to, to help you, to guide you, uh, to speak God's word and wisdom into your life. And you should submit to that. And we see from the passage that really what submission primarily entails is having a heart of humility. I mean, that's what he says there in, in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, humility is the key to walking faithfully in submission. And Peter here, he applies this actually just beyond the congregation to, to everyone in the church, to the elders as well. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. So the question then is, is what is humility? What does, what does humility actually look like? Well, we're given the definition of humility in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, and, and I'll just read it for you, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then in Romans 12, verse 3, Paul explains further, you know, do not speak of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So we see from Scripture then that humility is, is having this right understanding of yourself, understanding your, your rightful place that God has put you in. It's understanding that you are a, a sinner and all that you have comes from God, not the gifting of your own hand. And it is then using whatever gifts that God has given you, not to meet your own needs, your own desires, but to meet the needs and desires of others, to count their interests as more important than your own. And then later in that passage in Philippians 2, he says, uh, humble yourselves and, and look at the example of Christ, who himself was the Son of God, the greatest position of authority, but took on the form of a servant and came and died on the cross for us. See, we are called to do the same, to set aside our privileges, to set aside our, our, uh, our demands, to set aside our interests in order to serve and meet those of others. And in the Bible, the, the opposite of humility is pride. Peter says in our passage that God opposes the proud. See, pride was was really the reason for the fall of man. Man desired to be like God. Man thought that he was worthy of praise alongside God. Man said, I deserve a seat at the table with God, rather than humbling themselves and taking on the roles of servants, serving in the garden of God. And Peter here, he warns us not to do the same, not to fall into the same thing. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, we humble ourselves, we know our right place, and we know the right place of God in our lives. And that leads us to humble ourselves. Now, how do you grow in humility? Let's say that you are a, a person who struggles with pride. It's something you, you've been fighting uh, your whole life, and you seem to not be able to kick it. How do you, how do you change that? I think the primary way that we see it in the Bible is through prayer. 
You see, a prideful, a prideful person doesn't pray much because they don't see their own weaknesses and need for con confession in prayer. And when a prideful person does pray, you'll notice that his prayers are only concern himself. They're only concern himself and they're usually about himself. But a humble person, they see their, their broken state and they come to the Lord begging for him to be merciful to them. Do you remember the parable of, of Jesus in Luke 18? Jesus is telling the story of, of two men that are before God and, and praying. There's a religious leader. leader. He, he prays and he, he gives thanks to God. He says, Lord, thank you that I am not like, you know, the thieves or the robbers or, or this tax collector over here. And then he says, thank you that, that I tithe my 10% every month and that you have been gracious. But the other, standing beside him, a, a tax collector, he won't even look his head up. He understands so much his own sin that he, he is ashamed to even lift his head and look up to heaven. And so he stands there with his head down, he's beating his chest, and he simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, the only one of those two men walks away justified, and it is the tax collector who humbled himself before God. And so you need to humble yourself. You need to come to God in prayer. Literally, get down on your knees and pray. You know, there's something, there's something humbling about getting down on your knees, showing your weakness, and then coming to, to pray to God to grant you humility. And pray that He will reveal your sins to you. I think that's one of the biggest things with, with pride. We see ourselves as not really having any problems. Everybody else has the problems. Everybody else has uh, the wrong thoughts on this. Everybody else has failed in these areas. But humility involves recognizing our own sins and confessing them to the Lord and confessing our need for His mercy and grace. And so that's the, the first characteristic of finishing a faithful Christian. We are to be humble in submission. Now secondly, finishing a faithful Christian involves being faith-filled in times of anxiety. Being faith-filled in times of anxiety. Look at verse 7 from our passage. He says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Read that again. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about anxiety and worry. I was reading a, a, a study that today... People worry far more than they, have, than they ever have in the past. And I found that surprising because if worry is, is based upon you know, our circumstances, then we really, in this generation, have, have less reason to worry than in any other generation. I mean, our world is more prosperous. Our world is more technologically advanced. Our world is more prepared, and it's safer than it has ever been. Uh, just look at the instance of, of giving birth to children. I mean, how many uh, women are worried to the same degree today about childbirth that would have needed to worry back then? Yet, we still worry more today. 
People are more worried about their health, their finances, their job security, their relationships, their children, and their future. And now maybe you're someone who can identify with some or multiple of these things. I mean, would you say, are you a worrier? Sometimes we'll say that, I'm just a big worrier. Are you constantly stressed or filled with anxiety over what is is happening maybe in our world or what is going to happen? I want to get to the root of this. Why why do we worry so much? You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And Jesus here is going to address uh, the issue of worry. Luke 12, verse 22 to 31. He says this, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither, they have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life, to a span of life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. And do not seek what you are to drink or to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And so we see here that that Jesus says that the reason that we worry is because we lack faith in God. That's the real core of worry. We lack faith in God. Anxiety is a lack of faith. And so the way to overcome anxiety and worry is to grow in faith. And I want to give... A quick clarification. Worry or anxiety is different than concern. Worry or anxiety is different than concern. I mean, there are legitimate things in this world that we should be concerned about. I am concerned about the direction of Canada. I am concerned about the salvation of my children. I am concerned for the safety of my family. But worry is different than concern. See, worry, is, worry might be rooted in concern. That might be the initial seed. But then it goes beyond that. And it goes into the realm of lack of faith in God. You know, concern says, I recognize that, that these dangers exist. But worry says, I recognize that these dangers exist and I can't see or believe how God is going to get me through this danger. And so should you be concerned about some things? Yes, you should. We're not ignorant of the world around us, but should you be worried? No, you shouldn't. Have faith that God is sovereign in the situation and that he will take care of you. That's why Peter commands us here. 
He says, Cast, casting your anxieties on him. See, instead of worrying, we bring our concerns to God and he takes them and he comforts us in them and he reassures us of his goodness. You know, we pray something like, God, I am I'm concerned for the safety of my children. Help me to trust in your good and sovereign plan for them. God, I am concerned about paying the bills this month. Give me faith to trust that that as you provide for the sparrows, you too will provide for me. God, I am concerned about this relationship or conflict in my life. God, give me the grace to speak the truth in love and trust you in determining the outcomes. Maybe this is your prayer. God, I am I'm concerned about my salvation. Help me to lean on you and trust in the saving and complete work of Christ on my behalf. See, we, we cast our anxieties on the Lord and we understand that He cares for us. Peter says, cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. See, God cares for His children. And how I see it, you know, there are really two doctrines of the faith that should help Christians to never be anxious. Now, we're still going to sin. We're still going to struggle with worry. But if we, if we grow in, in, in holding these doctrines close to our hearts, God is able to, to deliver us from our anxiety and our worry. And the first, first truth is that God is sovereign. That's what Jesus was talking about when, when he was talking about God being in control of the animals, of the, of the flowers, and of all humanity. See, God is all-powerful. God is in complete control of all that happens. Nothing that happens happens apart from His sovereign will. If it does happen, it's because God allowed it to happen. The question is, do you believe that? Do you actually believe that God is in control of everything? The second doctrine is that God cares for us. See, God loves us as a father loves his child. And he wants what is best for us. And he knows what is best for us. And so then when you combine these two doctrines of, of God's sovereignty and God's love, there really is no reason why we should ever fear or be anxious. There's no reason. And so if you struggle with worry, anxiety, fear, remind yourself of these two truths. God is in control and God cares for you. And then you go and you, you cast those anxieties that, that Satan brings to you and you cast them on the Lord. And moving on to the third characteristic of the faithful Christian who finishes well, we see that they are alert to danger. Alert to danger. This is in verse 8. He says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, as I mentioned earlier, though we are not to worry, it does not mean that we turn a blind eye to the dangers of the world. As Christians, we are called to be alert and sober-minded. As one teacher said, have constant vigilance of your enemies. And the chief enemy being Satan himself. See, Satan is actively opposing the church. Satan hates the people of God. 
And Peter uses this imagery that he is like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Specifically, seeking to, to devour those who are not alert or sober-minded to the danger that's, that Satan poses to us. Now, that's how, that's how lions really hunt. Think about a lion. They will, they will stalk their prey. They'll, they'll watch them and they'll, they'll follow and they'll wait for a time. You know, when one uh, antelope or one, one uh, buffalo is unsuspecting and relaxed, and then they'll pounce and kill. See, Satan is looking to do this. He wants to kill and he wants to devour. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And so Satan is trying to devour, and he tries to do that in several ways. The first way is through temptation. Satan in the Bible is called the tempter. And we see that from the very beginning. Satan comes and he, he tempts the very first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden. He tries to deceive them, to prevent them from following and honoring God. And he's still doing the same thing today when he tries to tempt you. And the temptations are often little temptations. They're little temptations rather than temptations for complete rebellion against God. When he tempted Adam and Eve or when he tempted Jesus, they were, you know, these little things like eat the fruit. What's the big deal? I mean, change the, change the rocks into bread. You're hungry. And throw yourself off uh, the temple and the angels will catch you. It'll be a great miracle, a great way to start your ministry. So he wants you to, to compromise even on the smallest things so that eventually this will lead you to compromise on the big things and be fully devoured completely by him. It's just a little lie. Go ahead. Now, you have a right to defend your honor. Say what you want to say. It's only a, a picture or a video. It's really not that bad. And you've worked hard. You deserve what they have. Now, watch out for these little temptations, these little thoughts that we have. Those come not from God, but from the enemy. Another way that he devours is by separating you from the herd. You know, who do lions attack? Do they attack the antelope in the middle of the pack, or do they go for the ones on the outskirts, the ones that wander a little too far from the protection of the herd? So you as a Christian need to keep with the herd. That involves being a part of a church. Don't think that you can, you can fight the Christian fight alone. That's not being alert. That's not being sober-minded as we're called to be. You know, there is a real danger to you. Satan is seeking to devour you, and your brothers and sisters in Christ collectively come together to help protect you. They keep you accountable in the faith, and they serve to, to build you up, and you serve to build them up. And so that's the, the third characteristic of the Christian who finishes faithfully. He or she is alert to danger. We have an enemy. We have multiple enemies, and they are seeking to devour. And now this leads to the, the final characteristic of the Christian who finishes faithfully, and that is that they are one who stands firm in the faith. And we see this a bunch throughout verses 9 to 14, which I'll read now. It says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So who, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now notice here a few of the words that, that Peter uses. Now verse 9 he says, firm in your faith. Verse 10 he says, Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then verse 12 he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so a Christian who finishes faithfully stands firm in the faith. He or she perseveres to the end, remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus. And how do we do this? It says that we resist the devil. We resist the devil. So not only are we alert to the danger that Satan poses, but we fight back. We fight back against it. Verse 9 says, resist him firm in your faith. When the devil seeks to attack us, seeks to tempt us into sin, seeks to convince us that following Christ is not worth it, we resist him. And we resist him in a few ways. First, we resist him by fleeing temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But when temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, God provides a way out of every single temptation that we face. There's always in a way a way of escape, and that is how we resist Satan by taking the exit that God provides. And so you know here the sins that you are tempted with. You know where Satan is trying to lure you and and bring you over to his side. Maybe it is it is anger. And the escape then that God provides you with is an opportunity to say sorry in the middle of your conversation, instead of trying to defend yourself. You know, maybe that sin is, is lust. And the escape that God provides for you is getting rid of your smartphone. You know, maybe, maybe that sin is envy. And the escape that God provides for you is deleting your, your Instagram or your Facebook that causes you to be envious of others. See, we resist the devil by taking the escape that God gives you when Satan tries to tempt you. Another way we resist is by submitting ourselves to God. Submitting ourselves to God. James 4, verse 7 to 10 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near, to the, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, putting up external blockers against our sin is very important. You know, those are often the escapes that God provides for us. But these external things, they don't really deal with the heart issue. I mean, you can still lust without having a smartphone. You can still be angry even if you 
say sorry in the middle of a conversation. You can still be envious of others, even if you don't have social media. You know, these external things, they're like the moat of a castle. See, moats are, are in place to, to make the attack of a castle more difficult as a preliminary source of defense, but eventually the enemy finds a way to, to get by the moat and, it's still, and, and he still needs to be dealt with. And the way that we deal with the remaining attacks, the way we resist the devil, is we submit ourselves to God. And when we do that, it's promised that the devil will flee from us. It says we humble ourselves before God and we, we choose to, to run to the cross of grace. You know, notice that's what, what Peter says is the real reason why we can stand. Verse 10 says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, ultimately, we stand against the attacks of the devil by throwing ourselves on the grace of Jesus. Christ is the one who restores us. He is the one who makes us strong. He is the one who keeps us standing firm in the faith. He's the one that makes us hold fast to the end. And that is because He is the one to whom all power is given and the one from whom all power comes. And so if we want to resist the devil, we need to run to Christ. You might wonder, why, why do I continue to fall into temptation? You know, why am I not able to gain victory over my sin? Why does it feel like I have no power to resist the devil? It's because you don't. You don't. You do not have the power to do any of these things. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, we live by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that when, when temptation comes, immediately we turn to Jesus. Immediately we fall down on our knees and we ask for the Spirit of God to grant us grace and strength. You can't fight sin all on your own. You can't stand firm to the end. But Christ can, and Christ in you can. With that, we've now made our way through the letter of 1 Peter. Peter has told us what God has called us to do as Christians, and He's told us how it is we are able to, to walk according to our calling. And all of us right now, you all here, you are in the, the middle of a race right now. And the finish line, for some of you, might be really close. For others, the finish line might still be a little ways off. Either way, we all want to finish as faithful Christians to the Lord. And so I want to leave you with the words of Paul. Some of, some of the very last words that the great apostle would ever write in the book of 2 Timothy. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. 
keep the faith, and there is a glorious reward that is awaiting all of you. Amen. Let's pray.